Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see everybody. Might turn over to Revelation 14, verse 9, if you want to, or you can just follow along as I read it. Revelation 14, verse 9. It says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark on his name. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean that those who worship the beast are going to be tortured forever and ever? As many believe and as the traditional idea about hell fire that has been promulgated by churches down through the millennia to teach. Typically when these verses are read, people have in mind the context of the traditional pagan-inspired ideas about hell. So generally it is assumed that the meaning is that the wicked spoken of here are going to be tormented forever in an ever-burning hell. But is that the context in which we ought to understand these verses? The proper context to understand these verses or any verses in the Bible is not pagan concepts of hell, but in the immediate context of the scripture in question, in this, in this case, in the book of Revelation, and particularly in this chapter and in subsequent chapters, as well as the overall context of the Bible in terms of what it says about life and death and the punishment of the wicked. Do these verses really prove that the wicked are punished in a never-ending hellfire for eternity, as is often assumed? Or exactly what do they mean? So let's examine the scriptures this afternoon to find out. First, let's look at the immediate context. The book of Revelation is a prophecy concerning events future to the time in which it was written near the end of the first century A.D. It has to do with events leading up to the time of the second coming of Christ and a summary of what is to happen following his return. In Revelation 1 and verse 1, Revelation 1 and verse 1, we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Notice the reason the, the revelation is given. To show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. 
who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So John was given this revelation, but it was the testimony of Jesus Christ that the revelation was given to him by Jesus Christ and he was simply the one who wrote it down and recorded it for us. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Now we might note that it says here things which must shortly come to pass, things which are near, but God's perspective on what is near is not necessarily the same as our perspective. These words were written about 2,000 years ago, and some of the things prophesied in the book of Revelation have already occurred, but many of the things prophesied have yet to occur. So not everything was to happen immediately, but from God's perspective, it has not been all that long. As the Bible says, with a God, a thousand years is one day. And so God's view, being an eternal being, his view of time is not necessarily the same as ours, our perspective. But on the other hand, these things are not going to be delayed forever. They are going to happen. They are happening within a time frame that God has in mind. And it is not all that long a period of time in terms of eternity. In Revelation 1 and verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it says he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So we notice that the context of this prophecy, as we read it at the begin very beginning of the book of Revelation, has to do with events concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as I said, events leading up to that time and going beyond that time. But that is the focal point. That is the uh, fulcrum, you might say, of the events that are revealed in the book of Revelation. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Then they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Then in John 1 verse 9, John 1 and verse 9, we read, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. What does that mean? I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Many commentators claim that it is talking about Sunday, that John was uh, given this revelation on a Sunday which they, they say is what the Lord's Day means. But nowhere in the Bible is the Lord's Day identified as Sunday. John was given a series of visions through God's Spirit concerning the day of the Lord. 
or the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day and Day of the Lord are simply two ways of saying the same thing. And uh, better translation of Revelation 1 verse 10 is Rotherham's, where it reads, I came to be in spirit in the Lord's Day. Not on the Lord's Day, but in the Lord's Day. And heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. The concordant version reads the following in the same verse. I came to be in spirit in the Lord's day, and I hear behind me a voice loud as a trumpet saying. The term Lord's day here does not refer to a particular day of the week and certainly not Sunday. The vision concerns the Lord's day, that is the day of the Lord. Events connected with the day of the Lord, which is spoken of in numerous prophecies of the Bible, where we read prophecy after prophecy concerning the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, that term has several applications in Scripture, but one of the most significant and the most important for purposes of this sermon is the time immediately preceding the second, the second coming of Jesus Christ. In the book of Joel, this time, this day of the Lord, is a time of destruction from the Almighty. As the prophecy of Joel tells us in verse 15 of Joel 1, it says, The day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? The day of the Lord is great. The day of the Lord, remember, Revelation is about the day of the Lord. Or that's, that's, that, that's the vision that John was given concerning the day of the Lord, and as I said, events leading up to it, and so forth. And here Joel says the day of the Lord, that same period of time, is great and very ter terrible. Who can endure it? In chapter 2 of Joel and verse 11, Joel 2 and verse 11, it says, It is a time when heavenly signs will appear. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So it is a time when there will be heavenly signs and when there will be darkness, when there should be daylight, and when the moon will appear to look like Blood, that is, will be blood red. And this will occur in conjunction with the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. In chapter 2 of Joel, in verse 31, verse 31, it says, It is a time when the nations will be judged in the winepress of the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is in Jerusalem. And in verse 12, goes on to say, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark, 
and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Now, the, the same events are written about in the book of Revelation. And much of this same language occurs in the book of Revelation. In Zephaniah chapter 1, the day of the Lord is described as a day of wrath. A day of wrath. It says in Zephaniah 1 and verse 14. Zephaniah 1 beginning with verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. A day of trouble and distress. That day is a day of wrath. A day of trouble and distress. A day of devastation and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. Now notice likewise in Revelation 14 is described the time of the pouring out of God's wrath. In Revelation 14 verse 10, it is speaking of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And what we see being portrayed here in the book of Revelation and in these other prophecies, which are essentially the same subject being discussed, is a period of punishment when God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. Now, this is a relatively brief period of time during which this will occur, fortunately. It's not going to be an extensive length of time for this, these events to be uh, fulfilled or occur. The day of the Lord, on the prophetic principle of a day for a year of actual time, pertains to the year preceding the return of Jesus Christ. So, in one sense... In this particular sense, and these, uh, these plagues being poured out and the wrath of God being poured out is especially uh, speaking of a, a year of time or a prophetic day. And we see this principle of a day for a year in various places in Scripture. For example, in Numbers 14, verse 34, the spies God had sent into the land of Canaan to spy it out, to survey it, bring back a report to Moses, had been 40 days. They, were spent, they spent 40 days in the land. 
And after they brought back the report, the people of Israel rebelled and essentially refused to do what God had told them to do, go on into the land and take possession of it. So God, because of that provocation and a number of others which had occurred during the, their trek through the wilderness, told them that that generation would not be allowed to go into the land because of their rebellion and that instead they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it says in Numbers, 30, uh, Numbers 14, verse 34, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years you shall know my rejection. So for each of the 40 days, Israel was condemned to wandering in the wilderness for a year. Total of 40 years. In Ezekiel 4 and verse 5, Ezekiel was told to do certain things for X number of days. And God said to him, For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity. These were events which were to portray the punishment of Israel. And he said, I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. Forty days I have laid on you a day for a year. And these were periods of punishment meted out to Israel and Judah in ancient times for, in the one case, 390 years, and in the other case, 40 years. During the year immediately preceding the return of Jesus Christ, God will pour out plagues on the earth to punish the rebellious among mankind. And this period, uh, part of this is called the tribulation, which will last for three and a half years. or by some accounts, the final year will succeed the tribulation, although Israel shall be still in captivity during the entire three and a half years of the tribulation. But the year immediately preceding the return of Jesus Christ, which would be the, the third of the three and a half years, the, the last uh, 12 months of the three and a half years, is the day of the Lord. That is the term given to it in Scripture. And the, there will be a series of plagues poured out during that period of time, during that 12-month period. And they are described in Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9. The plagues are described as the seven trumpets leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the last three of the seven trumpets are described as woes. In Revelation 8, and verse 13, it says, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet 
of the three angels who are about to sound. And these will be the last of the, uh, the last three of the seven trumpets spoken of in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And as we just read, the last three are called the, the three woes. When the seventh angel, the final angel, sounds, signaling the last trumpet, Jesus will return to earth. He will return to earth at the time of the last trumpet. Revelation 11 and verse 15. Revelation 11 and verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Because at that time, Jesus Christ will return and begin his rulership, his direct rulership over the earth, establishing his kingdom on the earth, which will rule all nations. And with the seventh trumpet and the return of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God will be poured out on the earth in full measure in the seven last plagues. Now we just saw that there will be seven trumpets, as they are called, where various plagues will be poured out. But the seventh trumpet signals an, a, a series of plagues that are described as the seven last plagues, which also constitute the third woe of the three woes. And we read in Revelation 11 and verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The wrath will be poured out in full measure through the seven last plagues, the wrath of God. And then in Revelation 14, we find a preview of Christ's reign on earth a preview of Christ's reign after he has returned. In verse 1 of Revelation 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. So here we see a lamb. The lamb is a symbol of Jesus Christ here. And he is standing on Mount Zion. That means he has returned in this vision. So he is standing on Mount Zion in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And with him, 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. So here's Jesus Christ having returned, and there are 144,000 mentioned here. There are many others who will be there with him besides that, but these are specifically mentioned in this verse. And then in conjunction with Christ's coming in verse 6 of Revelation 14, it says, I saw an angel, another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. 
So here in conjunction with the coming of Christ is a last warning to mankind proclaimed by an angel. This time it's not just human beings that God is using to proclaim the gospel and to warn mankind. This is an angel from heaven giving this last final warning before the seven last plagues are poured out. And then we see an announcement previewing what is to happen as Christ returns, beginning in verse 8. And it says, Another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. So notice here these events and what happens. Christ is returning, and these warnings are being issued. And this warning is directly immediately before these plagues begin to be poured out, these seven last plagues. And it says, if anyone worships the beast at his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. So it's warning people, if you continue to worship this beast or his image, then you will receive punishment immediately. And it says, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, when Jesus Christ returns, we're told in other scriptures that he will return with his holy angels. And so... This is speaking of the time when Jesus Christ has come back with the angels and he will be pouring out wrath in the form of fire and brimstone, among other things. And these people will be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and of Jesus Christ. They will be right there involved in administering these punishments. And it says, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So these warnings are in direct uh, relation to Jesus Christ having come back to the earth and pouring out the plagues of his wrath on the earth and on mankind, on those especially who worship the beast in his image. Now, during the time of Israel's punishment, God warned them in Deuteronomy 28, verse 64, when he was speaking of future punishment for the people of Israel because of their rebellion against his laws, here's what he told them, warning them. This is Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, 
from one end of the earth to the other. Now, this is actually going to happen during the tribulation. It's happened before, but it's going to happen again in the end time. During the tribulation, the people of Israel will be scattered across the face of the earth. And God says, There you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor, their, nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest. This is during the time of their punishment. When they're being punished by God in the tribulation, it says you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes and anguish of soul. Your life will hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, Oh, that it were evening. And at evening you shall say, Oh, that it were morning, because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes see. Now what we have just read is a description of people who have no rest day or night because they are being tormented. They're, they're being punished. Job wrote in Job 30 and verse 27, Job 30 and verse 27, my heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. So when people are being seriously afflicted, and it is a, an affliction that is continuous, lasting through the day and through the night, then they will not be able to rest or have peace day or night. And so it will be as the plagues of God's wrath are being poured out, there will be no rest day or night for those who are subject to his wrath. It doesn't say they will have no rest day or night for eternity. It is speaking of the period of time during which the plagues of God's wrath are being poured out, that those subject to those plagues will have no rest day or night. And then we see in summary form the wrath of God being poured out in verse 14 of Revelation 14. Revelation 14, verse 14, Then I looked, Behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle in the earth, and the earth was reaped, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth, 
and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles. Now this is in the valley of Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem, as we read about earlier. And there will be, as we read in Revelation and other prophecies, Joel and so forth, there will be a massive battle, which will actually be occurring many places, but it will the focal point will be the city of Jerusalem at that time. And a massive army will be there, and vast numbers of people and horses will be slaughtered. And in that valley of Jehoshaphat, there will be so much blood, according to what we read here, that the blood in that valley will be up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And this is about the, uh, I believe, the uh, length of, the, of Palestine. It doesn't mean that the blood will be that deep throughout Palestine, but there will be blood all over that part of the world, along with other places as well, but particularly, as I said, the, the focal point of the valley, will, uh, the focal point of the battle will be in uh, Jerusalem and in particular in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And so then, in chapter 15, we're given more details about what we have just read in summary form in chapter 14. We're given details about how God's wrath is to be executed. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. As we, re as we saw earlier, this is the, these are the seven last plagues after a series of plagues from God pouring out his wrath on the earth. And this, this will complete or fulfill the wrath of God, these seven last plagues. And these plagues will be poured out on the earth and especially on the enemies of God, the beast empire, the great harlot, and those who worship the beast and the image of the beast, which is the great harlot. In Revelation 15, verse 5, Revelation 15, verse 5, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven last plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. 
Now, one false doctrine that's been taught is that during this time, Jesus will be in the temple getting married to the church at that time. But as we've seen, Jesus is already on the earth. These events are occurring after Christ has returned to the earth and the angels and Christ are there on the earth and people will be tormented with these plagues in their presence. These plagues are aimed primarily, though not necessarily exclusively, on the beast empire and the great harlot. And through these plagues, the beast empire and the harlot image of the beast will be utterly destroyed. And their destruction is mentioned in brief in chapter 16 of Revelation, where we read in verse 2, Revelation 16, so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and a loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So notice the first plague is that these sores come upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. Also with these plagues, nations will be drawn to the vicinity of Jerusalem where they will be judged, as we saw earlier. And vast numbers of God's enemies will be destroyed. Now, the pouring out of these plagues will actually take several days. And the period between the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets is symbolic or uh, pictures the second coming of Jesus Christ and atonement is the final judgment on Satan that is his being cast out or into the bottomless pit, as we will see. Not the bottomless pit, but the abyss, which is uh, referred to in King James Version as a bottomless pit. It's not really a bottomless pit, but it's an abyss, as we will see later. But that is a period of 10 days from Feast of Trumpets to Atonement. That 10 days pictures the this period of pouring out these plagues on the earth. In Revelation 16, and verse 12, Revelation 16, verse 12, it says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, or in, in Hebrew Armageddon, and that is a valley north of uh, Jerusalem, where they will gather, these armies will gather in a plain associated with uh, 
Armageddon and then there will be the final battle that is described in some of the prophecies we've referred to earlier. In chapter 17 of Revelation is described the harlot empire called Babylon the Great. And then in chapter 18 is described the destruction of the seat of the great harlot, Babylon the Great. Then in Revelation 19, and beginning with verse 1, Revelation 19 and verse 1, it says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot. Now remember, in the previous chapter, verse chapter 19, it describes the destruction of this harlot empire. So here is the aftermath being described. The multitudes of heaven are rejoicing because of the destruction of this great harlot. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her again they said hallelujah her smoke rises up forever and ever and actually this is uh, in a in a sense looking forward slightly to this final judgment occurring because immediately afterward it describes in even greater detail what happens to the beast and the and, and uh, Satan the devil who is behind all of the rebellion and evil in this world. In Revelation 19 verse 3 where it says, again they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. This is speaking of the smoke associated with the destruction of the harlot empire. So we already read in chapter 14 about the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. Here again we see in Revelation 19 and verse 3 essentially the same thing. The smoke from the destruction of this harlot entity rises up forever and ever. Now the Greek in verse 3 would read literally, if it were translated literally, her smoke ascends into or to the ages of ages. The word translated forever here in the in the uh, King James Version or the New King James is the Greek word ion. And that word does not necessarily mean forever in the sense that we understand it. Much less does it mean eternity. 
which when most people think of forever, they tend to think of forever going on with no end. In other words, eternity. Now, in some cases in Scripture, the word in its adjective form may indicate eternity, but primarily it simply means a period of indefinite duration or a period that lasts as long as the conditions prevail. Here is what the Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, says about the word ion. Quote, Ion signifies a period of indefinite duration or time viewed in relation to what takes place in the period. The force attaching to the word is not so much that of actual length of a period, but that of a period marked by spiritual or moral characteristics. In other words, an ion is simply a period of time during which particular conditions prevail. It does not mean forever in the sense that we understand it or eternity in most cases. Now, on our website is an article entitled The Truth About Hell. And in that article, we detail Bible prophecies showing that Rome will be destroyed by a massive earthquake at the time of Christ's return. As we read in Revelation 16, verse 18, Revelation 16, verse 18, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail fell from heaven, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. This is a reference to the destruction of that great city, the seat of the Harlot Empire, and it will collapse through a massive earthquake into a pit of burning sulfur, literally a lake of fire and brimstone. Brimstone is simply a word which means sulfur. And sulfur, when it is lit on fire, burns readily. And it keeps on burning until uh, it's burned up, essentially. And here you're going to have a massive lake filled with sulfur. And we're told in the book of Revelation that this massive pit of burning sulfur will become a prison for Satan. 
and the demons. In Revelation 18, in verse 1, Revelation 18, in verse 1, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So when Babylon the Great, the seat of the harlot empire, falls, it will become a dwelling place of demons and will have become a massive pit of burning sulfur, a lake of fire. Then we read in Revelation 20 and verse 1, Revelation 20 and verse 1, this is uh, uh, continuing these, this series of uh, descriptions of these events, which is somewhat overlapping in what they depict, although it is progressive in, in a sense as well. But this follows the, uh, the Battle of Armageddon, which is pictured in Revelation 19. And it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, or the abyss, which is, a which is referring to this pit of burning sulfur. It says, I, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the, to the abyss, or the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. Remember, this is symbolic language. This is not necessarily literal in terms of uh, an actual chain, but it symbolizes that uh, a pri that uh, that there is a uh, a prison that is going to have someone cast into it, and it says he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the abyss or the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So when Christ has come and poured out the plagues, and the Battle of Armageddon, as it's called, or the battle, the, the battle of the Great Day of Almighty God, as it's actually referred to in, in the Bible, occurs, has occurred, then Satan will be taken and cast into this lake of fire and imprisoned there. And he is going to be imprisoned for a thousand years or a millennium. After the millennium is over, the thousand years is over, then Satan will be released, as we just read. As we read in Revelation 20 and verse 7, it says, As soon as the thousand years shall be ended, the accuser shall be loosed out of his prison. This is speaking of Satan. And will go forth to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth the Gog and Magog, to gather them together in, unto the battle, 
the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they came up over the breadth of the land and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and there came down fire out of heaven and devoured them. And the adversary, Satan, that had been deceiving them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where were, not are, but where were, both the wild beast and the false prophet. This is from the Rotherham translation. And they shall be tormented day and night unto the ages and ages. So Satan is going to be released for a short time. He's going to deceive the nations after the millennium. And those who are deceived are going to come up to make war on Jerusalem and they will be devoured by fire. And then Satan will be cast back into the lake of fire, which will still be there. The same lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet will have been cast by, by uh, an angel acting on Christ's orders at the time of the battle of the great day of Almighty God. And it says, they shall be tormented day and night. Now, we already read that the lake of fire is a prison for the devil and his angels, the demons. So they is speaking of the devil and his angels who will be their torment. It's not speaking of the physical person referred to as the beast or the physical person, the human being referred to as the false prophet because they're human and as soon as they're cast into the, that lake of fire, they will be burned up and they will, their torment will be over with because they'll be dead. But the uh, demons and Satan will continue to be tormented unto the ages of ages, it says. So Satan will be cast again into the pit and there will be, following that, the great white throne judgment. And Satan and the demons will still be in that pit during that period of time, however long it is. Some believe it's a hundred years, which is quite possible. But I can't say that we can say with absolute certainty that that's the case. But however long it is, the abyss, the lake of fire, will still be there burning. And the demons and Satan will be there. And then will be the final end. The final end is a conflagration that will encompass the entire earth, wherein the earth as it exists at that time will be purged by fire to be replaced by a renewed earth different from that of today, but yet the same globe. It will be the same globe, but it will be so completely different that it is referred to as a new heavens and a new earth because everything will be completely new. 
as it says in Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea, the sea being the Mediterranean. So, the first heaven and the first earth will be a thing of the past from the standpoint of the surface of the earth and the configuration of the planets and stars. They will be reconfigured in an orderly way. And this is also described in other scriptures, such as 2 Peter chapter 3, where we read in verse 10. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now notice that here the day of the Lord applies to the period all the way through the renewing of the earth's entire surface by fire. In one sense, it refers to that one-year period immediately prior to the coming of Christ and a few days subsequent to his coming. But it also refers to the whole period, a period of time all the way through the complete renewing of the earth's surface, including the thousand-year period, the second resurrection, when mankind will be judged, and then the renewing of the earth through fire. And at that time, everything that can be destroyed by fire will be burned up to be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth, as it's described. Now, when that has occurred, when there is a new heavens and a new earth, Gehenna, another name for the lake of fire, this abyss, this pit of burning sulfur will have served its purpose. And Scripture indicates, although I'm not going to go into detail on this point, but Scripture indicates that then Satan and the demons will be cast out into outer darkness, perhaps being cast out completely beyond the confines of the physical universe. Never to be heard from again. So let's now get back to the fate of those spoken of in Revelation 14. Given this context, Revelation 14, verse 10, where we read about 
those who worship the beast in his image being tormented or punished. Tormented just is a, uh, a way of describing the fact that they're being punished severely. And among other things, that it says there in that context, they will be punished with fire and brimstone. But it says nothing about them being punished for eternity. It does not say they're going to be punished for eternity. It simply says the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Or literally into the ages of ages. Now, as we've seen, the smoke from the destruction of the harlot empire will ascend for ages until the complete reformation of the earth's surface is complete. It doesn't say that they will be punished forever and ever or that they will be subjected to torment forever and ever, but the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Something similar is said of the smoke of the destruction of Edom. Anciently, in a prophecy that also has an end-time application. In Isaiah 34 and verse 9, we read of, uh, of God's judgment on the ancient nation of Edom. And it says in Isaiah 34 verse 9, Its streams shall be turned into pitch, its dust into brimstone, its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched day or, or it shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. Its smoke shall ascend forever, it says. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Now, these terms uh, translated here for, forever and forever and ever are translated from a Hebrew word which has a meaning similar to the Greek word ion. It can, it can simply refer to an indefinite period of time. goes on to say in verse 11, but the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it, also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Now notice here in the destruction of Edom, we see a fire that is not to be quenched. And we see smoke described as smoke that ascends forever. But this fire is not burning forever. It is not burning now. It burned itself out long ago. The smoke, although we read this, this description of the smoke ascending forever, and again, remember this, this, this is referring to a period of indefinite duration. The smoke is not ascending now. This land, however, being described here, has been for 
centuries and millennia and remains for the most part today essentially a wasteland and largely forsaken. And the cities there, for the most part, are rebel, although, although there are a few scattered villages and so forth in the area. But nothing like what it was at the heyday of Edom in ancient times. Now, it speaks of the smoke of their torment there in Revelation 14 and verse 10. What is the, the smoke of their torment? How will they be tormented? Well, we, we read here in Revelation 18 part of what it is discussing. There are various ways that one can be tormented, and often it has to do with mental anguish as well as it could be physical pain. But notice what we read here in Revelation 18, associated with the destruction of the great harlot, the great harlot city. Revelation 18, verse 2, it says, He cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Now notice in verse 8, here is Babylon having been destroyed and the destruction is being described in this chapter. And it says in verse 8, Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. As we saw earlier, this great city called Babylon the Great is going to be destroyed with a massive earthquake and will become a lake of fire. It goes on to say, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. What causes them to weep and lament? They will be viewing the smoke ascending from this fire, which has destroyed the great city, standing a distance for fear of her torment saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her. And no one, for no one buys their merchandise forever or for any more. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple silk and Scarlet, every kind of cotton wood, uh, cotton wood, or citron wood, I uh, uh, should say. Every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil, frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and bodies and souls of men. The fruit of your soul the fruit that you're so longed for has gone from you. And all the things which 
are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea become rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Now, do you think it would cause you torment, mental anguish, if you saw, let's say, your house set afire and everything you own burned to the ground? As you watch the smoke ascend, would you be perhaps crying and wailing and weeping? This is not necessarily all that is being described by the torment, uh, the smoke of her torment, but it is part of it. But will the individuals themselves to be punished at the end of the age be tormented or tortured forever, or will they simply be dead? Those, at least those who are slain at that time. In Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66, verse 23, it says, It shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord, this is after Christ's return. This is immediately after these events we've been reading about. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Notice that for, for one thing, not all of them will have been consumed by fire because their corpses will still be visible, at least for a time. The fire is only one of the punishments that will be sent. But there are a number of other punishments that are also described in these events leading up to and including the time of Christ's return and the plagues being poured out. Then after that, some of the corpses lying on the ground will still be visible as people stream up to Jerusalem to worship God after the millennium begins. Now, the fire not being quenched does not necessarily mean that it has not been put out, although the 
lake of fire will continue burning at that time. But a fire, after it has accomplished its purpose, after it has consumed its fuel, can die out without being quenched, that is, being put out by some other means. And it says their worm will not die. That doesn't mean that there are immortal worms. Worms that live forever and ever and ever and never die. Maggots eating flesh generally do not die. At least they don't die as worms, but they turn into flies. What it is implying is that there will be uh, worms consuming these corpses and they will have uh, they will continue there until their work is done and those coming back out of captivity or to Jerusalem to worship will see the remains of those who were slaughtered as a result of God's judgment we read more about this in Isaiah 34, verse 1. Come near you nations to hear, and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it, for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, and his fury against all their, uh, all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall arise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. Again, this is, of course, figurative language. It doesn't mean necessarily that the mountains will literally be melted, but it implies that there will be a massive amount of blood on the mountains and the valleys and the plains. And those slain in the environs of Jerusalem will be eaten by the birds of heaven we're told in Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 15, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress, the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. We also read in Jeremiah 25, verse, beginning with verse 30, Jeremiah 25, verse 30, Therefore prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high, 
and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, hosts behold, a disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the furthest parts of the earth. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. We're told that the wicked will be burned up like chaff at the end of the age. As we read in Matthew 3 and verse 12. Matthew 3 and verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his, fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In other words, an all-consuming fire. And we're told that the dead, as we've seen, will be corpses on the ground and dust and ashes under the feet of the righteous. Malachi 4 and verse 1. Malachi 4 and verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly will be stubble. Notice the wicked are referred to as stubble. Now, stubble refers to the, the stubble and the chaff refer to what is left over after let's say, wheat or barley or some other grain is harvested. And the grain, the, the, the kernels of grain, are separated from the rest and saved, but everything else is waste, so to speak. And... Not always, but sometimes, even today, farmers burn the stubble on the fields. And this is what it's talking about. The wicked are like the stubble that is left over from the harvest that is burned up. And when you burn stubble, it just burns up very readily. And it says, the day is coming which shall burn them up. It doesn't say that they're going to be burned forever and ever. It says they're going to be burned up like stubble. That's the picture that is drawn here in the scripture. Human beings who are consumed by fire or simply by worms and decay after they've died. 
The day is coming which will burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. There will be nothing left of them. They will be dead. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. And uh, the same Hebrew word could be translated dust as well. They shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 4 says, So that we boast of you among the churches of God. Paul is writing to the church there in Thessalonica. For your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Notice here that being in the church doesn't necessarily mean you just sail through life with no problems or difficulties. In fact, it may very well mean that you suffer a great deal, including persecution, as did the people in Thessalonica. Verse 6 says, For since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now notice that those who are punished are to be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In other words, they will be destroyed. They're to be punished with destruction. To be dis destruction implies they're being destroyed. And again, not necessarily forever as we commonly understand the term, but for an age. Because the scriptures show that all who die in Adam, that is all human beings who die, will be resurrected at a later time, including these people. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. It doesn't say they're already alive after they're dead, or they're still alive. It says, even as they die, they shall later be made alive, meaning they're not alive until they're made alive again. But each one in his own order. 
Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power. And so we read of the what we call the second resurrection or the great white throne judgment, a time when all those who have not previously been resurrected will be resurrected from the dead. Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Notice here are dead people who are in the sea. They're not in hell, as it's commonly perceived of. They're not writhing in agony in uh, some compartment of hell, as has often been taught. They're in the sea because they're dead. And that's where they died. And what's left of them, whatever it is, is in the sea. But the sea gives up the dead. And death in Hades, which simply means the grave, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. They will be have an opportunity to do works They'll have an opportunity to repent. And then they'll be judged accordingly. And then it says, finally, at the end, death and Hades, the grave, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is when those who are to be cast into the abyss are going to be cast into it and suffer death. Other than the beast and false prophet and a few others which will be in the vicinity of the area when it becomes a lake of fire. But the second death is something that will occur at the end after the great white throne judgment. And there may well be others resurrected at that time who had been already judged incorrigible in this age, but all will be resurrected at one time or another. And those who are judged unworthy of eternal life, that is, whose names are not written in the book of life because they refuse to repent after given every possible opportunity, will be cast into the lake of fire. And they will suffer the second death. The dead here are slain at the time of Christ's second coming 
Most of them, at least, if not all of them, will be later resurrected to face a period of judgment. They will not have been continuing to live throughout the thousand-year period of Christ's rule, shrieking in agony. Those who persist in their sins, despite every opportunity to repent, will simply be cast into the lake of fire at the end of the period just before the conflagration that will consume the earth and lead to the new heavens and the new earth, and it will be a second death, not immortality in hell. As we read in Revelation 21 and verse 8, Revelation 21 and verse 8, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That is, all who persist in these sins and will not repent will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, and they will be burned up. We were, are warned in Matthew 10 verse 28, Matthew 10 and verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Or in other words, destroy one's life completely and without remedy. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Or in Gehenna, fire. Fear him who is able to destroy one's life in hell as well as his body. The final end of the wicked is complete destruction and annihilation, a cessation of life. God is merciful even to the wicked. No human being is going to be tortured for eternity in an ever-burning hell. Rather, the incorrigibly wicked will be cut off from God and life forever through death, the second death, after being given every opportunity to repent. 